Good morning, church. How you guys doing today? Good, good, good. Hey, everybody hanging out, watching with us online. Thank you for taking some time out of all the many things you could be doing on the internet and being here with us today. Everybody who's in person, again, I'm going to keep telling you this until the gas prices go down. In Jesus' name, they will. Um, thank you for being here. Like, seriously, it's no small thing. Like, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you for being here. Today, like Tim said, we are starting a brand new series called Homecoming. Before we dive into that, though, I want to talk to you about an activity that we're going to be doing leading up and going through this series to help spur our hearts both towards generosity and then also help kids who need a homecoming, kids who need hope. I'm going to talk to you about um, this thing that we're going to do with our friends at a friend's house. So a friend's house is basically a safe haven slash shelter here in Henry County for kids who are at risk. So something crazy goes on at home and they just need a place to stay. That's where a friend's house comes in and it provides a home for kids who are in a time of crisis. And so what we're going to do together as a church to try to spur on generosity and kind of have some win-wins around everything is from today up until even Easter Sunday, what we're going to do as a church is for every time that someone shares the live stream. So if you're watching online, this is where you press share. So for every time someone shares our live stream, we're going to donate $10 to a friend's house. All right, so what that means, and again, I, I guess there's really not a problem with that as long as you put it back up and you don't continue to scroll. You can do that literally right now to go on there, just press share and allow the live stream to go out. I believe that's gonna help the gospel continue to go out and people are gonna meet the good news. And at the same time, in doing that, keeping with our theme of homecoming, you are gonna help support a ministry that's helping kids find a home. So my hope, my prayer is that you would say, hey, man, I, it's a very simple thing that can potentially have a huge outcome. I'll press this. Maybe somebody finds a stream, finds a hope, finds a home in Christ. And at the same time, I can help out a ministry that's helping kids who are homeless find a home. Let's pray together and we're going to dive in. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for all you're doing, all, all that um, you are conjuring up here at MCC. I thank you for uh, being being the type of God who holds true to his word, that when we lift you up, you draw all men, all women, all children, you draw all to you. And Jesus, we pray that that would happen today. I don't come here today to lift myself up. I don't come here today to lift MCC up. Jesus, we showed up today to lift you up. And in so doing, Jesus, I pray that we are drawn to you, me included. We need your help, Jesus. We're gonna talk about some, some heavy things. They're gonna, for sure, Jesus, uh, tap into some of the parts of our lives and our hearts that still have some work to do, that still aren't where they need to be. And Jesus, I pray that you would meet us by the power of your word exactly where we're at. But I pray, Jesus, that you wouldn't leave us there, that today we, we walk out of here feeling one step closer to at home with you. In your name, amen. So we're entering in this series, we're talking about homecoming. When you hear the word home, what type of things does that start to conjure up in your own mind? Like when you hear the word home, you know, do you, you think about the place where you can just put sweatpants on and just be yourself? What do you think about? You, you think about the place where, you know, you can burp or belch or do those things that, you know, you would normally do anywhere else. You think about the place where you can kind of let your hair down. You think about the place where you can, you know, just be you. I want to know kind of who I'm talking to in a room like this because I was thinking about this this week and I was like, what city feels like home to me? 
And I kind of went down the list, and, and honestly, like, I'm three years into McDonough, and McDonough is beginning to feel more and more like home. But I want to know kind of who I'm talking to. If you're here, and you, like, immediately you go, I know what place is home. Like, I know what city is home. And maybe for you, that's a place where mom or daddy still live, or it's a place you've been for a long time, or maybe it's a place that you've lived for a really long time. You're like, I know what home is. And then there's this other group of people who maybe are like me, like, you've kind of bounced around. And we've had kind of a tour in ministry that's kind of like how sometimes the people who are in military's tours, we've just kind of been a little bit of everywhere. And even where we're at right now, it's not, we're still trying to figure it out. It's beginning to more and more feel like home. So we're kind of this, um, it's complicated kind of part of that question. And then the other people who are like, I know what home is. So if you're in that place where you're like, I know where home is, I know what that is for me, raise your hand. All right, cool. All right, now if you're in this place where you're going like, hey, it's complicated. And so like, I, I don't, either that place could be home, this place could be home. If you're at that spot, raise your hand. Okay, a little bit less. All right, cool. Raise your hand if you feel like McDonough's home. That's a decent amount of us. Okay, cool. I just want to know who I'm talking to in this. See, home has this unique ability to conjure up all sorts of emotions, all sorts of tensions in our own heart. Home can be the very same place where some of your best memories, like West, where they reside. And, and you know, you, you would just go back to those moments in your mind, even as we're talking right now. But at the same time, if we're honest, home for a lot of us can also be the place where some of the most painful memories happen. It was in a home that we were sat down on a couch and family meeting, we're like, we don't have family meetings. What, what, something is about to happen. And, and we were told that there was a divorce that was coming. Homes are the places that somebody invites you over to and they say, hey, can you sit down? I gotta talk to you about something. Home of the place that you got the news that you never wanted to get. But I think deep inside of every one of our hearts, there's something special about home, the place that we were created to where we feel like we can take a deep breath in and out and know this is where I belong. I think that's something God hardwired into us. And on top of that, we see that laid out in some of the songs that become hit songs that have to do with home. I mean, you know, here's a few of them. You know, you can let out a whoo when we hit the one that you, you can relate to. Um, Country Roads, Take Me Home by John Denver. Not my cup of tea, but it is for some. It's not, it's a house, a house is not a home by Luther Vandross. Anybody? Okay, there we go. Sweet Home Alabama by the theologians Leonard Skinner. <laughs> who says you can't go home by John, Bo, by, oh wait, who is this? Bon Jovi, y'all ever heard of him? Okay, cool, a bunch of 80s, 80s folks in here. Um, Homecoming by Kanye, which is not why we named the series what we did. Um, Mama, I'm Coming Home by Ozzy Osbourne. Uh, Small Town by John Mellencamp. Hold On, We're Going Home by Drake. And uh, another more recent one here, uh, The House That Built Me by Miranda Lambert. See, these are all these hit songs and they're all tapping to this thing and you can hear them in it, and you can hear them and they take you back to your hometown. And there's something that's hardwired into us for home. And I think that that's something that God actually put in Adam when he put him in the garden. I think there was something that God put deep inside the heart of Adam, even when he created him and, and, and breathed him out of the dust and, and had Adam sitting there. Adam and Eve both had something hardwired into them to say, this is the garden, this is the place I was created to. And it had nothing to do necessarily with the trees and the rivers and all those things. It had to do with the union that they had between God there. And what I want you to know about what happened with Adam after the fall and after sin entered in, when God took Adam out of the garden, he didn't take the longing for home out of his heart. Adam lived 930 years. 
which that sounds miserable, right? Like <laughs> 930 years. Okay, now look, here's a unique thing that Adam had experienced in his life that nobody else experienced. Adam and Eve were the only people to have experienced what perfect union with God was like. And then they went 930 years knowing what the real thing tasted like. That's homesick. They spent 930 years remembering what it was like. And I don't think from Adam to this chair you sit in, whether you're here in person or watching online, I don't think that has left the heartbeat of the human heart. This longing for perfect union, perfect connection back with the Father. I read this, this quote this past week and I wanna share it with you guys. It says, nothing is more misdiagnosed than our homesickness for heaven. We think we want sex, drugs, alcohol, a new job, a raise, a degree, a spouse, a vacation, a new car, or a cabin in the woods, or a condo in Hawaii. But what we really want is a person we were made for, Jesus, and the place we were made for, heaven. Nothing else can satisfy. And I've tried. I've tried. And I can tell you that after trying, if there still seems that there is a longing that cannot be fulfilled, friends, it points to the fact that this earth is not our home. And over the next few weeks, we're gonna lean into a story that Jesus told, a parable about a homecoming, about a father who had a son leave home and a father who had a son stay home. And both of them were prodigals. And we're all through this story and my prayer is that as we lean into this story from, from this day all the way leading up to Easter, that you would commit to say, I'm gonna be here and to be a part of this so that I can begin to get my handle and get my mind and my spirit around this longing that I feel inside of me. And that you would commit to be here, to engage, to take part in this and maybe even be a part of reaching out and allowing somebody else to come in and find their homecoming as well. If you got a Bible, where we're gonna be is Luke chapter 15. We're gonna be there for the next four or five weeks. So Luke 15, um, I think one of the things that would be awesome as you guys are turning there is throughout the course of the week, uh, just, just go to Luke 15, read Luke 15 over and over again. Get this down deep in your heart and I believe that God's gonna do some amazing things through it. As you're turning there, let me give you the context of what's going on in this chapter. Because a lot of times we can think, oh, prodigal son, and some of you are like, okay, wake me up when we get to the older brother because I'm religious and I know that's what I struggle with. Uh, my prodigal days are over. I don't have to worry about any of that. Well, pause, we're gonna dive into that for sure in here today. But I want to give you the context because sometimes we think this is just a story about how God loves us and welcomes us in. But you don't really get why Jesus was actually telling the story if that's all you think. So now that you're in Luke 15, go up to verse 1 and 2. Luke 15, 1 and 2. Jesus is doing his thing. It says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. Okay, so that's the first group of people, the tax collectors and sinners. And I don't have time to spend a whole lot of time camping out on, on what those two groups of people were, but the tax collectors are the people who would have, you would have looked at them like a huge traitor. Imagine a foreign country comes in and just completely takes over America. A foreign country comes in, completely takes over America, and they don't just overthrow us and rule us, but they overthrow and they manipulate, they rape our women and children, they take, take all the things advantage of us, they begin to abuse us, make us slaves, they begin to do all those things. And meanwhile, one of your neighbors who used to be a patriot, who used to be a red-blooded American person, they says, you know what, I want to actually work for this nation. And then they start coming and knocking on your doors and saying, this is what the nation that's, that's raping and pillaging our family, this is what they need from you. And not only takes from you, but takes more money on top of that to line their pockets. That's exactly what was going on as the Roman government ruled over the Jewish territory. 
And when you were a tax collector, that's how you were looked at. The vilest of traitors. And then it says there were the tax collectors hanging out with Jesus. And then there's this group that's just called sinners. And really that's kind of a catch-all phrase. And yes, the people around who are the religious people, they know they do sometimes sin. But in Jesus' day and age, there was a group of people who were just kind of classified as sinners. It was kind of a catch-all phrase. It included things like prostitutes, included things like pimps, included things people who were you know, swindlers and stealers, robbers, people who were uh, maliciously abusive. It included all that. But also it included anybody who had any sort of illness and affirmity. So if you're blind, Regardless how righteous you may think you are and how much you may uh, hear the Bible read to you, if you're blind, if you're crippled, in that day and age, you were deemed sinner. And we see this show up when Jesus meets and he heals this blind man and the disciples begin to ask this question, who sinned, this man or his parents? And Jesus said, nobody sinned, but he was blind so the glory of God could be manifest in this moment. What, what is happening here in this moment is there's a whole group of people. If you remember way back to when we were in the series when we were going through the Sermon on the Mount, one of the opening um, talks that I gave in there, I introduced you to this group of people called the Anawim. The Anawim people were the people who said, God is not on our side. And it's made clear, it's made obvious by everything that's happened, by the fact that we are on the margins, by the fact that we are the minority, by the fact that we do have these conditions, by the fact that we are not the religious elite. See, their world, very much like ours, was divided into two categories, the haves, and the have-nots. And so here in this moment, we have gathered around Jesus. His entourage is, and this is gonna burst some of your religious bubbles, Jesus' entourage is the have-nots. If Jesus was walking with his entourage down the, down the road, that would be the type of people you, you would tell your wife, buckle your purse. If Jesus' entourage were walking down the street, you would say, lock your doors. That's his entourage. Now the have-nots, the religious elite, they see this, Luke 15, chapter two, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they see all this happen and they mutter, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them, which is actually a really great place for an amen, hallelujah, that he welcomes sinners and he eats with them. So in, in that environment, that setting, where Jesus with his entourage of sinners and tax collectors, and then on the outskirts of that, these religious elite Pharisees, teachers of the law, he overhears. And, and sometimes like there's a couple of different times in the scriptures where Jesus just, people are thinking something and Jesus hears their thoughts and calls them out on it, which that's crazy. Um, they actually mutter this. I don't know if Jesus supersonic hears them or he just hears them, hears them. But in response to them saying, this man dines, eats and talks and spends time and gives his attention to sinners. Jesus tells this collection of three parables. The first one was the parable of the lost sheep, then the lost coin, and then he hits this last parable of the prodigal son. And he's trying to explain to them why he would do that. He's explaining both to the have-nots and to the haves why he represents a God who is both at one point for the broken and the lost, and at the same time is welcoming in those who think they're found to realize how lost they really are. So let's, let's dive into this. Luke chapter 15, starting verse 11 through 12. Jesus continued. He's getting ready to tell him this parable. There's a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of this state. 
And so he, that's the father, he divided his property between them, which again, if you're sitting, put yourself in the audience, we hear this and it kind of becomes old and mundane. But if you're hearing this, when Jesus gets to this part here, when he says, the younger one said to his father, give me my share of the state. What you would think Jesus would just naturally say next is the father pulled out his belt and began to chase the kid out of the house and out of the driveway and all the way out of town and said, you're done. You are disowned. You are no longer a part of my family. Because essentially for this kid to come in and say, dad, give me my share of the state was his way of saying to dad, you are dead to me. Let me bring you up to speed on some of the, the Hebrew inheritance practices. So I'll use my family as an example. I have two sons, similar. I have an older son and I have a younger son. When I would die, my older son Titus would get two thirds of the family inheritance and the last third would be left to my younger son Ezra. And so this son is, is due one-third of the entire family inheritance. His brother is going to get two-thirds. He's going to get the double portion of the blessing. They didn't split it right down the middle. There's a special blessing for the firstborn. All right? So he comes to dad and goes, Dad, I, I, I want you to give me what is owed to me. You hear the sense of entitlement. You hear what's going on. Again, for everybody listening in, even the people who are the have-nots, they're going, that's a no-no. Like, we don't ask our fathers that. And what's going on here is a classic flow of how sin happens in our life. It happens here for this prodigal and it happens for us when we become prodigals as well. We see the father, we want his resources, we don't want his rules. And so we sacrifice the relationship to get what we want. We, we see the father and we want his resources. We want what God can offer. We want house, we want wealth, we want health. We want those things that he, he can give us. We don't want his rules. We don't want, he want to do all the things that he tells us to do. And so what we do is we sacrifice the relationship with the father so that we can get what we think will make us happy. And this, this guys is not a decision that you just roll out of bed and make. There's some things that we can learn about this prodigal just kind of by taking the context clues of the story. One of the things that Jesus doesn't mention about this man is that he, he says he doesn't have a wife. There's no wife mentioned either for the older brother or the younger brother, which leads us to believe that these are likely teenage young men. In that day and age, you didn't become a man when you graduated college, got a job and had two kids. In that day and age, essentially, once you passed puberty, you were there. And they were gonna start trying to figure out how to get you married, how to get you off so that you could start being an agrarian society that revolved around how many people could work the field. That was what the goal was. Be fruitful, multiply, have kids, get married, have kids, get married, have kids, and more kids, and more kids, and more kids, because more kids equal more money, equaled survival. So when he comes to dad and he asks this, he's essentially saying, Father, I want what you have, but I don't want you. I'm better off without you, but I need you to give me what you actually owe me. Now, we, we see this part right here. And this is where the people listening are originally and us listening when it says, so he divided his property between them. We can hear that and we go, what a negligent idiot. Why, why would you give this? Okay, now we're, oh wait, he's a teenager. You're gonna give this 17 year old one third of the entire estate. Now we're putting infer inferences here, but this is a wealthy father and the, the story and the fact that he doesn't go under by liquidating assets and doing this. And he invites the son in, which says, hey, I'm gonna give you another whole portion of this. It shows that this is a wealthy father. And we look at this point where he goes, hey, I'm gonna give you, I'm gonna give you your share. And we go, he's negligent. What an idiot. But what I want you to see is the heart of the father. 
See, we look at the prodigal son story and we say, oh, look at that heart on display at the end when he, he hikes up his robe and he runs down and he gives him the ring and the fatted calf and he, he puts new sandals on his feet. We think, oh, that's the moment where the love is really happening. That's when it started. It started right there. When this father loved his son enough to give him the freedom, despite how much he knew it was gonna hurt both the son and himself, he gave them the freedom to not force his love on him to not force him to do this. See, God loves you enough that he will let you tire yourself out in your sin. And some of you showed up today tired. You showed up today tired, weary, worn out, and God's saying, I provided for this. You're continuing to run. I love you enough to not lock you in your bedroom and throw away the key. Love is not love if it's forced. And God is a God who loves us enough to say, if you feel like I'm dead to you, and you only want what I can provide. I love you enough to give you the freedom to run. That's love. It doesn't make sense. It's scandalous, but it's love. Story goes on in verse 13. Not long after that, the son got together all he had. Essentially, it's a banking term. It's pretty much meaning he liquidates all of his assets. So if dad said, hey, there's, you know, okay, there's, there's 25 cows, those are yours. Like he gets all that together and he liquidates all those assets. And then he takes those assets and he goes into the far country. After he had got together all he had, he set off for a distant country. And there he squandered his wealth with wild living. And this is where I like to pause in the story and ask you just to really think about this. What was he really looking for? What was he really looking for? One of the things that came to me as I was looking through this, and I I haven't looked at necessarily through these eyes before, but if he is a young man, fellas, you remember back into that point in time where you were 16, 17, 15, 16, 17, 18, growing up in a dad's house, right? You were fighting this tension between I'm not a boy anymore and I want to be a man. And some of your best knockdown drag out fights with dad were when? They weren't when you were 12. There when you were 15, 16, 17, 18, because you're bumping into who is the man of this house and who, more so, who is the man of this house? Who is the man of me? Who's in charge here of my life? So this son, I believe he's looking to prove that he is a man. So when he goes out into this far country, I believe he's doing some of the very same things that men do to prove that they are men. I believe some of that includes just wild, exuberant spending on sex because that was the only way you could get it then. This will prove that I really am a man. I I believe it was adventure after adventure, hotel after hotel, staying here, doing these things, having this, uh, buying people gifts, saying, oh, hell, I'm just giving all these things out, just doing a little bit of everything, just making sure that everybody had their needs taken care of. Oh, I'm gonna go in and buy the bar. I'm gonna make it rain. I'm gonna do all these things with all this money that my father has given to me, and I'm going to recklessly spend. I'm gonna squander it all. Because, I mean, even a a dumb person could take some money and go into the far country and go, hey, I'm at least going to buy a house to own so that if the bottom really does fall out, at least I have a place to stay. And I guarantee he had enough money to buy a home. He probably had enough money to buy a couple of camels. He had enough money to do those things. But instead, like a boy, he chose to spend everything on fleeting pleasure. They could get him the attention and the approval that he thought he needed to make himself. Verse 14. And after he had spent everything, there was severe famine in the whole country and he began to be in need. Severe famine after he had spent everything. 
as if God had a plan. He let him get out there. He let him get to a place of desperation. And a father who is sovereign over every detail of this young man's life and every detail of my life will allow you to get to a place of, of brokenness and emptiness and then the bottom of the world will drop out. And some of you are in that and you're still denying that God is the best option. And I'm telling you, he still is. So verse 15, because he had nothing, because he wasted his money, there's nothing that he invested in, there's no home, there's nothing. Verse 15 says, he went and he hired himself out as a citizen of that country. So he goes from um, a citizen in, in the father's kingdom, in, in this, this holy family, so to speak, where all the resources, everything is provided for him. And he goes and now he's working. It's a hired hand on a farm. He goes out of that country and they send him out into the field to feed pigs. And at this point in the story, both if you are a uh, have not and a have in the story, both the tax collectors and the sinners and the Pharisees, they're going, oh no, because they know that a good Jewish boy should never be caught dead on a pig farm. They know that there's no, that pigs and for them, that was an unclean animal, you should never be there. And then to make matters worse, Jesus adds in this next detail. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. He had spent all of this time, whether it was giving money to women, whether it was giving money to the friends that he had, he had spent all this money giving to them. And then his time of need and desperation, nobody gives him anything. Have you ever experienced that with the world yet? That you gave yourself away and then had nothing to show for it and they gave you nothing back for it. At this point in the story, we kind of hear this story and go, okay, yeah, I get where you're about to go, Trent. We're about to you know, talk about the prodigals and talk about how we, you know, the, all the lost sinners need to come home and, and they need to repent and they need to do all these things. But I wanna pause right here and help even those in the room who may feel like when you hear this story and you've heard the story years and years and years, you think, okay, I have more in common with the older brother. I stayed home, I, I kept perfect attendance, I worked all those days, I didn't sin. There's a lot of us in the room and you feel like you've been in Christ for a long time, you're not a prodigal, you've already come home. But hear me, what was happening in this story is he was distant from the Father. And, and because of that, I would be willing to bet that there's people in this room and there's people watching online who if you were really asked, how close do you feel to the Father? You would say, maybe I feel a little bit like a prodigal. I can't really remember the last time I felt super close to God. And that proves the point here that prodigal is not a position on the map. It's a condition of our hearts. It has nothing to do with where your feet may be. It has to do with what's going on inside of your heart. This principle was made true. I mean, how many of you know this? You've experienced this. Some of you, this has been your story. You were still living in the house, but up here and in here, you were divorced. It was over. You, got it. you, got, you probably have somebody at your work. Hopefully you're not this person at your work. Have the, the courage to quit. But you've seen this person at work who they've already quit. Now they haven't turned in their resignation paper, but you can tell by the way they do everything they do. They have quit. They are done. It is over without them actually saying it is over. And I think that's some of what's going on in the prodigal. I think he had already become a prodigal way before he ever came up to his dad and said, hey, um, give me the share of the inheritance. You don't just roll out of bed and make that ask. So prodigal, prodigal is not a position on the map. It's a condition of our heart. And it happens it happens when we think and believe one of Satan's best lies to Christians. One of Satan's favorite lies to Christians is that religious activity equals relational proximity. That your, that your religious activity, that all the things you do that are, are quote unquote religious, it equals relational proximity to the father who you're supposedly doing them things for. 
And this is why we can be in church and we can serve and we can give and we can be a part of community groups and we can um, go and ha have small groups meet in our homes and we can do all these things. And hear me on this because I, I've been here and I've talked with plenty of people who have done this. You can even be on church staff. And when somebody kind of goes, hey, when was the last time you really felt close to God? You go, oh. here's why. You can be in the Father's house and not have the Father's heart. And so, to all my people who are followers of Christ in here, this is where we have to be careful. This is where we have to see the younger brother in us all. This is where we, we have to ask the question, if we do feel that distance, and that's maybe something you're gonna ask you, how close or how far do you feel from God right now in this moment, right here, today? Do you feel close to him? Do you feel far? Yeah, I look at this story and I go, why, why, did he, why did he wander away? Like, what was, he, what was he after? What was he looking for? Why, why did he leave this place? And again, Jesus is trying to, he's telling this parable, little story, big truth. He's telling this parable. What is he after here? Why would this son leave this environment where all of his needs were provided for? There was literally nothing he had to do to earn what he could have got. Again, it was an inheritance. What do you have to do to get inheritance? Nothing. Stay alive. That's what he said. Right. Not die. <laughs> That's all he had to do. But instead, what he does is he goes out into a world looking for all these things. And the thing I want to see here, I hope you see this in him, and I hope you see this in you. We do this. We walk away from the Father while looking for the very things that we can only find in the Father. We say, man, I, I, I want acceptance. Okay, but then I go to school and I, and I try to find some guy who will give me that attention and acceptance to make me feel like I am enough. And so I'll sacrifice things maybe with my body or I'll say things that I really normally wouldn't say because that will give me the acceptance that I think I want. Meanwhile, back at home in the father's house, there is unconditional acceptance. You don't have to sacrifice morals. You don't have to open yourself up. You don't have to become impure on anything. You can actually just have it there. Well, God, I, I want stuff. <laughs> I want things that they will make me happy. In the Father's house, you will receive those things. But we say, you know what? I want them in my time. In a, in a microwave culture, in a microwave society, with all of the cacophony of media and advertising, it says you should have this and you should have this now. And that thing that you used to have, that thing that you do have now, it's crap. You need a new one that does the same things just to blink faster. So we roam away from the Father's house looking for the very things that can only be found in the Father's house. And when we roam away, because man, I've I felt this. It's the reason that as a kid, man, I busted my butt, did everything I could to do in, in sports to be able to fill my room with trophies. I would just fill it up, man. I, and, I wanted, and I had like played baseball from like four years old to, to high school. And, and, and honestly, we kind of got to this place where the room was kind of running out of places to put trophies. But I would not dare put a trophy in a closet or in a cardboard box because I wanted my father to be able to walk in that room and say, man, you really are something special. You go everywhere else looking for something that can only be found in our father. See, the rest of the world, and you felt this when you've had your prodigal tendencies, the rest of the world declares this right here. Prove yourself. So, so moms, 
Well, I've got to prove that I am a good mom. So I've got to decorate this Valentine's Day box. I've got to practice lunch really specially. I've got to throw the birthday party with all the frills and everything else. And I'm going to put it all on the credit card and go into debt to be able to make all these strangers from my kid's class that I've never even met yet. I'm going to make them think that I'm a really good mom. I've got to prove myself. I've got to prove myself. And, and I don't know why he left. Maybe he left because he was just always known as the father's kid. Or he was just the older brother's younger brother. And so the idea of going out to a far country, it was really appealing because now he wasn't connected to any of those guys. He could just be himself. He could make his own identity up as he went. He didn't have to live in their shadow anymore. And some of you, when you find yourself wandering to the far country so you can get out of the shadow of a dad or a brother or a mother who put some high, high expectations on you. And you're saying, "I, I would rather not prove myself because I know if I'm trying to prove myself in this environment, I have to do it in light of them. And that's hard which is why you really need to pray for my kids. Prove yourself. The world says prove yourself. And you think the only way we're gonna make it in this world is if we do prove ourselves. Because deep inside the heart of every person in this room, whether you're a Christian or non-Christian, you're asking this question. Do you love me? And it's not just a romantic question we're asking to our spouses. Deep inside the heart of every person in this room, we're, we're asking a, a boss. And again, it's not, not, not a romantic. Do you love me? Do you appreciate me? And is that gonna be manifest by the way that you promote me, by the way that you take care of me, by the way you give me an off day when something is going on in my family? Do you love me to, to the spouse to go, hey, I, I want you to show me that this is actually here. It's evident that you keep your word, that you show up on time, that you do these things, that you put pitch in where you need to. Do you love me? And in this world we live in, the world will answer this in a resounding yes, but it's not stopping there. Yes, we love you, if. Oh yeah, we love you as long as you continue to produce. We love you as as long as you continue to put out good content. We love you until you say something that doesn't line up with our agenda. We, We love you as long as you say something that hurts my inner self. We love you as long as you meet my needs, give me what I want. We love you if. And most of our lives are spent dancing around the world's conditional ifs. Here's here's what's wild about this story. To the question of do you love me, if if the younger son is in the father's house, it is no doubt And it's even made manifest in the fact that the father gives him his third of the inheritance. Do I love me? Yeah. And like, as he is spending the father's money, he loves me, he loves me, he loves me, he loves me. Hey, prostitute, he loves me. All those months are all proof positive that he is loved by that father. And when you find yourself running running away from the father, I want you to see yourself still, even the resources that you have to run is supplied out of love and grace from your father. And he runs out of a place where there's always gonna be a resounding, yes, I love you, into a place where it is a yes, dot, 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 if. The, the principle is this, there are endless ifs hidden in the far country's love, but there are no ifs hidden in the father's love. He's not looking at me and you going, hey, I love you if you don't do that for seven weeks. I love you if you start tithing. I love you if you have good attendance at church. I love you if you're a perfect mom. I love you if you're a perfect dad. I love you if you're a perfect husband. I love you if you have it all together. I love you if you never gossip. I love you if you have a good thought life. I love you if you're not depressed. I love you if you're not anxiety. He does not say any of those things. There are no ifs in the Father's love. None. 
And what breaks his, what has to break our hearts as fathers and has to break his is that when we as his kids leave a place where there are no ifs in his love and we run to a world that is ridden with ifs, this love only works and reciprocates on the if. It breaks a father's heart. And see, that's, that's the place that we most long for in home. It's a place of unconditional love. That's what you were created for. That's what we all long for. There's a verse in Isaiah that points to um, how this is actually what we were created for. I love it. I found it this week. Um, I had stumbled upon it a couple other times, but I love this. It says, can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child that she has born? And he's trying to be graphic on purpose here. Like none of you women would be like nursing. And then somebody walk in who you haven't seen since high school and you go, oh, hey, great to see you. And Like none of you would do that. Like it's there. You know it's there. You know, I've seen it. I haven't experienced it, but I know it's there. It's the point he's making. Like, no. In the same way he's saying, though she may forget, I will never forget you. It goes on and even more beautiful, but still kind of graphic. It's foreshadowing Jesus. He says, see, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. It's God's way of saying, like, you are tattooed on my hands. Your name is on the Father's hands. And again, it's not erased. Your sins can't erase your name on his hands. Jesus' nail-scarred hands prove that. Your name is written in those scars. Another passage that I love here that proves this fact that He's been with us all along. He knows your story. He knows your purpose. And he longs for you to be home. It's Psalm 139, verse 13. It says, for you created in my inmost, for you created uh, in my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. In that holy, sacred place of a mother's womb, God ordained the miracle that is your life. And if he had a purpose then, he still has a purpose now. And that purpose is you to find home in him. And that home in him can only be found because of Jesus. And this is where I've always had a hard time coming to the story and going, okay, where, where is Jesus in these three characters? Or who is Jesus in these three characters? Like I, I get there's the father and the father is obviously pointing to God and his love, but where's is, where is Jesus at? Is he Jesus in the, the, the older brother and what the older brother should have done? Is, is Jesus in the younger brother and what the younger brother should have done? And, and we're going to get to a little bit of both of that. But as I studied this this week, I want you to see and compare and contrast Jesus with this younger brother. Jesus, in the very same way that the younger brother took his inheritance, he left from a place where all of his needs were met and there was union with the father. That's what the younger brother got to experience. Jesus, in the very same way, he is there in the heavenly thrones with God. He's been there from the very beginning. It says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Perfect union with God. Leaves and goes on a rescue mission to the far country. Takes all the father's inheritance, is bound up in him and who he is as God in flesh on earth. Comes to this place, not in a mission of rebellion, but in a mission of rescue. Spends everything he has. Finds himself with nothing and led all the way up to it in the very same way that this prodigal son squandered all of his wealth, all the things that father gave him. Jesus in a redeemed way squandered everything that God had given him, poured himself out to the very last drop, didn't have a home, didn't have finances, no 401k or stocks, no wife, no kids, nothing to show for it. And he's there naked, no even clothes on his back, whipped naked, giving his life. 
and a Roman tool of torture to say that because I am the redeemed, holy, true younger brother, now all the rest of you younger brothers and sisters can finally come in and finally have home and finally be a part of this family that you were created to be a part of from the very beginning. There's a passage in Colossians that points to this. Colossians 1, 19 through 22. So for God is pleased to have his fullness dwell in him. It's all the fullness of God. That's all the resources. That's the inheritance, all of God's inheritance. He was pleased to have dwell in Jesus and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood on the cross. It is Jesus' blood on the cross that made peace between prodigals like me and like you. Because once you were alienated, once for every person in here, you were out in the far country. And, and what happens is we, we get saved and we try to bring far country back into our life in faith. And we start to sin a little bit. And what do we do? We alienate ourselves. Oh, God doesn't want anything to do with me. Well, I've just been wondering. I'm not, it's, he's upset. Now yeah, he's upset. And then we just give ourselves a little bit of time. We go, okay, time heals all wounds. And I wounded him. So now I, maybe time is up and I'll try church again. And wander back in. Think about it like this. Say there was a independently wealthy doctor and he heard of this tribe in a far distant land that he had never been to, heard about this tribe that was suffering with this incurable illness that up until that point, they had no idea, no cure for it. He's at this, he hears of this tribe. He, on his own, develops a cure, on his own, travels from his homeland to go into this wilderness jungle to try to save the lives of the people who are part of this tribe. He goes and he enters into their jungle. He enters into their wilderness. And at first, people are very opposed to his medicine. They don't want it. He even takes some fire from them. And then after a while, two young men come to him. And on the brink of death, they go, we need help. Now, how does that doctor feel in his heart? Is he going, about freaking time? I've been, here, I've been in this jungle. I, I, I could go back to New York City where I'm wealthy. I'm in this jungle trying to help you idiots. And that's how we think Jesus is gonna respond to us. Like he comes into the jungle of your sin and your shame and he's there trying to set up shop and to bring healing. And we think, oh gosh, no. It brings him great joy to welcome lost, broken, prodigal sinners into his arms. It brings him no greater joy than to give you the antivenom to sin, which is his blood shed on a cross. There's nothing that brings him more joy. So he says, come on in, come on in. And then, and then, look, again, <laughs> it's not come in and get healing and then just stay here in the triage. It's go back out into the wilderness and tell everybody you can find that this is where the only hope for life can be found in me. And that doctor rejoices knowing that his purpose is accomplished there in that jungle. And my hope is that you would allow him to accomplish that here in this jungle that is planet earth. There's two verses I'll lead you with. First John 3, 1. 
But see what great love the Father has lavished. That means he spared no expense. He has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. Amen, hallelujah, that we are children of God. And the reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Last one. This blows my mind. Jesus replied, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching, which I can't say any more plainly than that. If you love me, you're gonna obey my teaching. And the fact that you don't obey says that you don't love. And that's horrifying. If anybody loves me, they obey my teaching. And this is the part that gets wild. My father will love them and we will come to them and make our home with them. But I thought we'd just think of all these songs. Like, I mean, I grew up singing, I'll fly away, oh glory. Like that was when I was going home, right? But if this verse is true, then home is not something I'm going to. Home is something that is happening. And this is where we enter in. We're going to spend the rest of these five weeks unpacking this tension that we live in as believers. We are in the already, not yet. If this verse is true, that means that I am already someone who within my life, and I feel like I'm a pretty terrible landlord, but even within my life, Jesus and God have made a home. And see, the, the problem with us, man, I sat across a guy uh, multiple times in the last couple of weeks as we've been doing some stuff in men's ministry. Some guys have been coming and talking to me and everything else. And I remember sitting across the table from this guy and, and, and we were talking through some things, processing through things. And I looked him in the eyes and said, listen, you're a good man. And, I, and I, I could feel him cringe on the inside. I could barely get the words, you're a good man, out of my mouth before he started going, no, man, no. You know, and like, it pained him to hear somebody say, you're a good man. To which I would say, our problem is not that we have such this high lofty view of ourselves. Our problem is oftentimes that we have too low a view of ourselves. If Jesus and God, if through your faith, Jesus and God live in you, then by God, you can be a good man. You can be a good woman. And you are. You may have wandered away from it. You may have a prodigal heart. But he's at home with you. And what that means is, if he's at home in you, then wherever you roam, whether it's to the far country or it's here in the church house, there's nowhere you can go to escape him. Because he's with you. You're with him. So the question I want to leave you in as we go into a time of communion is this. It'll be up there eventually. When you roam, there it is. I just had to say that. When you roam from home, what is it that you're really looking for? When you roam from home, when you stop looking for the unconditional love, acceptance, and approval that God can give you in him, when you roam away, what are you really looking for? Like when you go on that spending spree, what are you really looking for? When you panic over the state of your 401k, what are you really looking for? When you're on that website, you know you shouldn't be on. What are you really looking for? What are you really looking for when you roam from home? And I pray that you hear your father's gentle whisper that he has all of that and more at home with him. And you run to that father today. Pray. Jesus, thank you for your love, mercy, and grace. It is only by those things that a sinner like myself could stand and preach your word. I pray as we meet with you in communion that you would draw our hearts away from uh, the baggage that we feel like we may be carrying into this room 
to draw our hearts away uh, from painful, broken memories of the distant country and that you would, even now in this moment, God, let us rest in the promise that you are creating new, mo- new memories in the home that we have in you. You're a good father. Far better than we deserve. Meet with us today.